Welcome to our interview series on brave feminine leadership. I'm so thrilled today to be introducing Anya Yule. Welcome to the conversation, Anya. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. So, um, Anya, before we kick off, I am just going to touch briefly on your bio. Um, and then I'll ask you to do a little bit more of a, a broader sort of introduction. So let me share with the audience um, part of your extraordinary story. So Anya was, um, let's get that out of the way. Anya was born in a Kenyan refugee camp and moved to Australia at the age of 10. Anya is an inspiring entrepreneur with aspirational dreams for social change. Anya is the founder and CEO of Miss Sahara and Anya Model Management. She's an advocate for women and girls' rights, refugee and gender equality, sport for development, youth participation, and improving the representation of minority groups in Australia through diversity and inclusion advocacy. Anya seized, seized every opportunity offered to her, not only to extend her formal education to doctorate level, launched her social enterprise businesses, but also has a vision for an inclusive society in which individuals from different backgrounds can work to achieve their aspirations. Anya, I loved when you and I first met um, and I loved hearing your story and I'm really confident that our audience is going to too. So many of them may have come across you before, but to those who haven't, can I kick off by asking you to share with us, you know, who are you as a human being, Anya? <laughs> yes, thanks, Melissa. Well, who am I? That's one of the questions that I always ask myself when I reflect. And, and I just said, I am just a young woman who have gone through some challenges that people might see as a big deal, but those have made me to be the person who I want to become. And that is someone who's fighting for social justice and social change. That is my mission. That is my vision to make sure that I am working to represent everyone. And I do it through variety of things that I have gone through of that I've participated in. And as you mentioned in my bio, I am a sport fanatic. I used to play football. So that's part of my journey as well. I am a South Sudanese Kenyan born um, from a refugee camp that is part of my identity and make me who I am today. I am an Australian as well. And I am a young woman who's on a mission to succeed in life and to collaborate with an amazing women who are in a, a position of influence and leaderships and that can mentor and inspire me. So I am many variety of my past and present and, um, and the things that you've read out that make me who I am. All of those identities are what make me who I am. So give us an insight because there'll be many people in our audience who don't. Give us an insight into your childhood. Ooh, my childhood. It's quite interesting because oh, I feel like my childhood was very... Um, not so much of a, a kid childhood. I've always said my childhood, I was born in adult um, body. I was um, growing up in a refugee camp. The only thing that I remember very well, and I used to be told is that I was one of those kids who never wanted to just go outside and play. Um, I've always find myself surrounded by women or sitting next to um, elderly and aunties who will often be just sitting there and having conversation. I was always intrigued to hear the conversation that happened among um, the adults. So growing up in a refugee camp, 
obviously there are a lot that kids can do running around playing um, given that there's not substantial education platform for kids or things to be engaged that we often see here in Western countries. Um, so I don't really remember having a normal so-called kid time that everyone has here. Mm -hmm. uh, my kids or upbringing has been just knowing the refugee camp was my earliest place for the first 10 years and also just growing up sitting next to aunties and you know mothers and just listening to the story so that was my first that's my upbringing so what about arriving here in australia at age 10 tell us about that oh, arriving in australia in age 10 was quite interesting as you can see that I moved from a country that I only thought that it was my only, you know, place that I was going to grow up, which is the Kenyan refugee camp. But when I moved to Australia and just arriving here with no knowledge of the culture, um, didn't even speak a word of English, and just the surrounding environment that I had just arrived in was, of course, very shocking for a 10 years old little girl. And um, but for for me it was also intriguing, and and I saw it that I was now embarking on a new journey that I didn't know how it was going to end, um, but I knew that I had just been I guess given a second chance because everything was new for me, and I think I really did take it quite well um, arriving in Australia even at a ten years old. I think I've had already had that experience of what I have seen in the refugee camp, the struggle or the challenges that many um, communities that I saw growing have gone through. So it wasn't really a shock when I came here. The only thing that it was the language barrier within, which then influenced, you know, my struggle during high schools and primary school to just try and um, and, and learn English. So it was a bit of mixed feeling for me, but I think certainly I was looking forward to starting a new journey in Australia as well, as much as I didn't know before, but that was the case. When you left school, what did you see as the opportunities? What did you dream about? God. I think for me, I've always had it in me. And when I always talk to my family and friends about who I was um, and where I am today, um, in the back of my head, I always knew that I wanted to do better, um, that I wanted more for myself and that I have the ability to go after what I want. And I think that that thinking came in with me um, reflecting and seeing the way I am and given that I've left a refugee camp and now I was in this country where opportunities are there to grab. And so I, when I was in high school, obviously I struggled so much in terms of, you know, education. I always felt like I was lacking behind um, from primary school to early mid high school. And then and, and that at one point it really affected me. And I thought to myself that I was never going to make it any further in terms of my education and anything like that. But there are other revenue that can allow you to succeed in the ways that you do. And for me, one of those um, revenues and ways of grounding myself was football. Mm. And, and so I got into football because I knew that I could do anything. And regardless, I knew that football doesn't, um, one allowed me to be so smart on the field in, in that sense, because all I know I could just pass a ball, kick a ball. Uh, so I think I've always just in the back of my head, I knew that I want to do more and I knew there are opportunities there. It was a matter of me taking charge of those opportunities. 
So how did that start opening up for you then? So you're grounded <laughs> through football. Where, where does the journey take us from there? Yeah, so that journey really took me in um, a roller coaster and challenge and new opportunities and new beginning. When I got into football, I also um, had to challenge my own community to be allowed to play football. Now, I came from a community that didn't allow or didn't see the benefit of sport for women. And so when I even thought that I had just find a new journey that can elevate me, that can point me in the right direction, on one side, I was also facing um, a neglect within the community, within my own community, because they did not understand the benefit of the sport. And that really did affect me at one point, but because I was quite determined to make sure that I wanted to, I want to advocate for other women to be involved in the sport industry I think I took charge and that was a step for me that was a step into my advocacy work into understanding what these all concepts of diversity and inclusion mean not from a, a broader Australian contact but also within looking within our own community what would that look like um, and I start to communicate it with my own community about the significance of sport and why women should be allowed to play sport. And from there, um, my sport put me into a new direction and that was toward leadership, um, acknowledging my own struggle and acknowledging my own challenges and seeing how I could utilize those challenges to then support other young women who might want to get into that position as well. And so that was the beginning of the things that I do now. And from there, it led into opening door for education for me. Um, and one of those pathways was I was offered a, a football scholarship to UNSW because mm -hmm. of my engagement um, in the sport industry, but also using sport for development. I'm using it for leadership capacity, using it for advocacy to reach out to the migrants and the refugee community and to start talking about the significance of sports. And the organization that I was part of at that time, they call Football United. They have been part of my journey because they came at the time where I was vulnerable, at the time that I really wanted to connect to a community that I needed to connect with like-minded people who can guide me. And that Football United came to Western Sydney at the time, and I got involved in their community initiative. And that community initiative program is what then sent me to South Africa during the 2010 World Cup. Yes. Australia at a community festival um, and from there it just attend I was then again reminded that I had my own privilege of traveling to South Africa on an Australian passport and also it, it gave me that glimpse of a sport uh, um, identity that I was looking for that I'm here now for sport purpose but if I go back home to Australia what could be the possibility of getting something more? Um, and those possibilities came um, right out of that when I got offered again that scholarship to go and study at UNSW to do my bachelor's. And that this was in 2011. And, and from there, that's everything just kick off. Yeah. So, so many things for us to, um, to pull out of that conversation. You know, I remember when you and I first met, one of the things I talked about was, you know, I'm very aware of my own very privileged yeah. 
thing um, as a white female leader and potentially the advantages that that has afforded me. And Mm. it's interesting, you know, I loved when you shared with me at the time that real light bulb you had in South Africa around, um, you know, the privileges and what you could do with with those. Yeah, absolutely. And and it was the... It was an opportunity for me to just even reflect within um, as an individual of my own journey and to compare where I had come from, you know, being born in a refugee camp, spending the time in the refugee camp and going back to this um, small community called Alexandria in South Africa. It was that switch of saying, oh, my God, now you're traveling with an Australian passport. You can go back home tomorrow where you have all your best, um, your basic human right needs, where, you know, in, in, in that community, the education is lacking, the basic human rights were not there and I could see it. And from there, I had to even unlock of what does privilege mean to me? Uh, and, and not looking at it from a, a political perspective, but from an individual standpoint of, oh my God, this is what I have. And if I just beat myself up and say, why did this happen to me? Then it is unfair and I'm taking away the support and the need that I would need to contribute to society if I just focus on my victim mindset and rather than looking from a, from a privileged perspective and saying, well, what can I contribute now? If I have this power in my hand, how could I use that power and privilege um, from, from, from that standpoint of view? Mm. So it fascinates me. One of the questions I'm asking as part of this series is around leaders, around whether leaders are born or made. And I just wonder, do you have a perspective on that? You know, I always find that question very tricky. I, Personally, I think it's both. Mm. I think leaders can be born and leaders can be made. In, in reflection of my own journey, um, I don't, yes, I've never really sat down and reflect on my leadership, but I guess it come into play because because I was born under circumstances that made me who I am and that probably shaped my thinking and the way that I view the world um, around me and how I want to engage with people. To some extent, often I say, it must have been born in me, given that I was born in a refugee camp under circumstances where people struggle. And so by the time I was born, I think, and growing up in in the camp, I internalized all those elements. I've talked to some amazing women who I have seen have some type of leadership. It might not be formal, but informally, there are leaders within their own communities. So through my own reflection, I think, yes, leaders can be born, leaders can be made. Um, it's all about nurturing and, and figuring it out along the way. Okay. So tell me, you said something that was really interesting to me as well when we met, and um, it was reflecting I think it was reflecting on your community correct Mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong but it spoke about your journey into modeling and the fact that one of the avenues that was sort of put out there as available to you very much focused on you know you're beautiful and you're tall but didn't necessarily nurture you know offer something that was nurturing you know people's brains to become leaders what was that whole sort of conversation about Yes, and um, it wasn't even just, it wasn't from the, my community. And actually, um, just to touch on that, I, 
modeling is not even very favorable in my community. They either want doctor or a lawyer or something else so but from the wider Australian community and this is something that I had to re reflect um, deeply is that the standard beauty when many times I've been seen oh you're beautiful you're tall have you ever thought of modeling and, and and that concept that we should be directed to one perspective because you have that beauty or you have that height that it should be your way of your revenue or your growth I, it didn't sit well with me. And I think as a black woman, and maybe because of the society stereotype and assumption that are often imposed on us, is that I didn't want to see myself as another just beautiful girl doing a runway. And so I've always object the narrative of you should be a model. Um, but even though I was interested because of the fashion side of it, why not? I wanted to do, if I were to get into the fashion industry, I wanted to give it a twist, something that is going to match my um, vision and mission, um, something that is going to tie to the work that I do rather than just saying, I wanna be a model. So I've really had to challenge those mindsets and perspective because I think as black women, society limit us. Um, and, and a lot of women who might have, um, different identities and trying to find themselves may get confused and that's why it is important for young women like myself who have grown up in two cultures to really be reflective of how those issues can have an impact on young women that might not have the significant network or the connection that that I might have now and really drive those conversations and say that you can be anything that you want yes if you want to be a model you can be a model but what else can you do can you be a businesswoman can you study something on this side can you go beyond than just being a model and I think that has always been the message when it comes to me um, working the fashion industry and advocating for um, black women in the fashion industry so how did you get into it and I know parts of this story but I would yes. love to, to hear this story well <laughs> so I got into the fashion industry honestly because um after I finished playing football well, once I was injured and I couldn't play anymore I realized that I've always just dressed like a tomboy I'm always I'm always always on my tracksuit and and one day I just said to myself I really want to challenge myself um this was after I finished my bachelor's and I said I really want to start maybe doing some courses or doing a, you know, a fashion um, modeling stuff that will still allow me to touch into community projects. Mm -hmm. And when I came across beauty pageant, I don't even know how I came across beauty pageant. Um, and I've always heard a, a bit of connotation regarding beauty pageant and, you know, some people don't really like it and it has all those means. But when I looked into it, I saw that they had an element of community and charity work toward it um, and advocacy. And so that really resonated with me. And I said to myself, well, if you join a beauty pageant, it can then it helps you develop your public speaking, your confidence, and your sense of fashion. And, and so I convinced myself and I, I ended up signing up for one of the biggest pageant, Australian mainstream pageant. Um, and I, I, I remember just starting and I met, I went, I made it to a national final for Miss World Australia. And, um, and it was a national, it was a state final. And I turned up and everyone looks so glamorous, you know, but 
at the same time, I was the only the minority girl. I was only the black woman there. Um, and to top it up, I had a worse sense of fashion as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, okay. So there was a, a lot of issues happening. And I remember getting, I didn't make it through. But for me, I wasn't there for the competition. In the back of my head, I, want, I, I was there for experience. That's what I to do and I remember just talking to a friend who was one of the biggest coach um, his name is um, Peter Serena who then came to me and he said I can sense that you're not doing this because you want to win but you you're doing it for something else he said let me teach you how to mix up colors you see right now I'm wearing this bright color I used to not wear any color yeah, yeah I was not dressing according to my skin tone I was wearing wrong colors which didn't pop and um, he's like, let me let me guide you, let me coach you on how to dress, how to look feminine, because that's what you're saying, because that's what I said. I said, I want to look more feminine. I want to wear heels. And um, and from there, two years later of competing, I went back to compete in another um, beauty pageant. I went from a, not making it to a state final to becoming the first, um, first runner up for one of the biggest pageants for Australia. Wow. Through this journey, there were a variety of issues that I was obviously seeing, and those were one of them lack of um, diversity um, and getting words put out like, you know, I was too dark, you know, to, to be in the Australian pageant. I didn't meet the criteria or that Australia wasn't ready to represent a minority or other just fan will say that I was too fat and they needed someone skinnier. So there were all these limitations, um, but while I was experiencing all this journey, I was also building my confidence and self-esteem. I was really building that up for myself and for other young women who might want to follow my path. And when I start to experience those comments, I ask myself, how would a lot of those young women feel those who might want to do beauty pageant or might want to do modeling for real, and it's not just for the experience, they want it as an employment opportunity, but if they get disencouraged, how would they continue to succeed? Um, so I, for me, I saw the opportunity, not a problem, and that's how I kind of saw it. I said, okay, well, there's an opportunity here for me to do something about it. So I then went on and I did my own research about the beauty pageant world, the advocacy side of it, um, the charity side of it. And, and in 2018, I in 2019, I had gone to compete overseas and I won a title for Miss Africa in Poland, which set off my international platform as a, uh, as a model and, you know, increased my audience across the globe as well. So when I came back to Australia, I looked at my network that I had then and then I said to myself, well, if you want to solve a problem, what do you want to do? What can you do about it? And if you want to support um, young Black women of African descent in Australia to be included um, in this process, what can you do about it? So I decided to go on and launch the Miss Sahara in 2018, just like that. Brilliant. Yeah, and, 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 and the way that I really approached it, it was that, and that's why we call Miss Sahara more than a beauty pageant. Um, because it wasn't just about the beautiful girls or the tall girls. Um, for us, it was about any young African women who want an experience to be to be um, helped and engaged and connect 
and for us to encourage them to then go into the wider Australian beauty pageant and participate. Miss Sahara is not about saying that you just stay in our pageant here and that's it. No, we're saying that we have the tools to train you, to coach you, to guide you and to mentor you in order for you to then go into the other mainstream pageant and be part of the society rather trying to say only in there. Um, and so it was built on that initiative that to lead as a leadership program for the African women that give them the opportunities to engage first before they can go seek more opportunity. And yeah, um, that is wonderful. Can I ask, yes. um, how long ago did you hear the feedback that um, Australia wasn't ready to, to represent yeah. a minority as a winner? How long ago was that? This was 2016, 2016, my first, when I became a first runner up. Yeah. And what's your perspective on that landscape today? Look, it's still there. We have a small minority mind, dead people that think like that. I, me being involved in the fashion industry for the last six years, I can see there's a difference. There's an increase in terms of inclusion. It's still limited, but it's just often it's minority mindset that make it hard for everyone to challenge people and to educate people on the inclusive society that we live in. Um, and, and that's the hardest part of things. I'm not going to lie and say that we are perfect and we live in a utopia world where everyone are going to be together. It, it's not. And I can still see it in the industry that it's lacking. Mm. Um, and it's not even about that. It has become this norm of token we often have one person that represent everyone and that's the next problem that we are facing in the, when it comes in the um inclusivity in the fashion industry that i know of is that yes we want to address the inclusion issues but we only have a one token person that represent everyone um and so it, we have come far but i i think we do still have an issue when it comes to inclusion yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, my conversations um, all come with a lens about, um, you know, I'm, I'm really driven to see more female CEOs. Yes. You know, I have, I have those question marks about why we're not seeing yeah. um, females in leadership roles. And so listening to, um, you know, listening to the um, diversity conversation around, you know, we often just have one. It's, it's the same, isn't it? It's, you know, it's, it's very similar. Can I ask, I want to ask, I know you and I spoke about, um, you know, some of the um, downsides of, in your own words, raising your voice as a black woman. So yeah. you know, racism, microaggression and things like that. What is that? What has that been like that sort of, uh, you know, that place for you? It's, it's honestly for people like me who quite understand those concepts and how they take place. Um, me myself often turn a blind eye on it, and I have come across I I experience all these sort of challenges from a intersectionality aspect, whether from a gender to being a black woman to being of a refugee. Um, I get comments that are very yeah microaggression. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned it to you before, but there was a, a, an event that I was in and one 
why all, all men go to me? Oh, you know, I've heard that you're doing these amazing things. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he continued to say, you're quite smart because he found out that I'm doing my PhD. He goes, keep going on. And then he goes, you're quite smart for a refugee. Oh. And, and I said, if I didn't, if I wasn't confident enough and I probably would just walk away and would not even think of something. And I, I said to him, what does that even mean? What, what does a smart refugee look like? Um, and he couldn't even answer because I called him out. Mm -hmm. I called him out on his power. I called him out from, you know, not recognize, recognizing his privilege. And I called him out for those microaggression jabbing word that he just put out. And he was just stunned the fact that I even questioned him that way. And so often there are certain places where I will question you, but often it get exhausting. It get exhausting to keep challenging, to keep educating people. And I know that is part of the work that we do when it comes to inclusion, um, but sometimes people just need to be aware that as for us black people or as a black woman that it can be frustrating and there's also this attached sometime if you do speak up and I know I don't face this often because I've been lucky in my own journey that I have not faced many of those issues but I know some women have is that when you start to raise your voice and varies your concern and talk about them you then be seen as an aggressive black woman yes it happened in work um, places. It happened in conversation with friends. It happened with your co um, colleagues. If you then start to question the micro um, microaggression behavior and, and the lack of understanding, you then become that angry black woman. Mm -hmm. And those issues are still very staggering and can become frustrated and it limit people from speaking the truth and having a voice to really challenge or to educate other people because you then to start reflecting and say well how much can I do how much can I take this on to keep challenging you if you're going to turn around and say I'm the problem um, so I'm lucky that I have not experienced but I know personally family and friends who have experienced all these type of issues on a constant basis yeah how do you help um the women that you work with how do you help them navigate that yeah so one thing that we have done when we started the misahara um it was one we wanted to use it as an educational and leadership program for african women or black women in general and we have continued to run educational workshop online or in person and often we give our contestants that come on board the opportunity to be the leaders and the drive behind all of those workshops so some of them will run online workshop on identity or race or diversity and inclusion and we often will invite everyone online to join the discussion and give them a safe space to continue to have this conversation mm -hmm. the mindsets that we just, it's not just a safe space so you will continue to stay there. It's a safe space for you to ask questions that might be hard to ask outside, but with an education push and advocacy push that will allow you to get out of that safe space comfort zone and be able to challenge 
those element and aspect that you in, encounter when you are talking to someone. So over the last, you know, during the pandemic, we've been just running online workshops that have been amazing and giving everyone the opportunities to come together and say, yes, I experienced this, but how do we go around this? So that's one way that we have been doing it. Um, the second way that I do it, um, I mentor a lot of the young women as well, because I have been mentored by many women in my life. And, and I like sharing the knowledge and those elements that I get. And so often I'm in conversation with the girls on the phone, scheduling a phone with them and just talking about some of the issues they might face. Um, and a lot of the questions that often do come up too, how do we make sure young women, um, black women of African descent growing up in Australia make it into the leadership position, become CEOs, become executive um, leaders in the nearest future. And because I am inspired always by women, like yourself, Melissa, I've told you this before, that every conversation I take it as a learning um, cue for me, and I'm able to transfer back into my community and to the young women that I talk to. Um, so that's another way that I really um, use my platforms and engage with young women through that um, area as well. I love what you said then, because for me, um, every single conversation I have is an education opportunity. And every time I do one of these interview series, I feel like I've done a kind of mini MBA. Yeah, um, exactly. Just listening to all of these, you know, incredible leaders and their stories and their journeys. Have you always, um, you know, it sounds like you've always been someone who's been very eager to soak up stories from people mm. around you and, and to learn from when you yes. talked about the aunties in refugee camps and things yeah. like that. How do you do that? You know, for people practical who want to know how to do that sort of yeah. thing, how do you do it? Oh, the practical part is always, I think, you know what, Melissa, it goes back to that self-reflection. And I always start with, when it comes to my work, that you cannot control what other people do, but you can control who you are and what you do. And I think at an early age, I said to myself, I need to control what I want in life. And that part of what I want is surrounding myself with those who see the best in me. Mm. Myself, those who understand my vision and mission and that could say that you're doing this right or you're doing this wrong. And, and, and part of that journey has been to recognize women who have inspired me in different way. Um, I might have been, you know, surrounded by many women in the refugee camp, but when I came to Australia, I have also been surrounded by an amazing group of women from diverse backgrounds who I call my mothers, um, you know, everywhere. And, and so I think it's that mindset of that surround yourself with a group of women that could support you, nurture you. I think nurturing is a significant um, concept and word that we should embed it into our journey because it, it put you at peace and it allowed you to think that you are being protected, that people um, that you have in your life want to see you thrive, want to see you um, do really well. So I, I, I take all of that as part of my journey and a reflection of what I do is a reflection of the people around me. That nurturing is yeah. so important. And so many of the leaders that I talk to um, feel isolated 
you know, quite isolated and lonely in what they're doing and and leadership can be lonely. Where do you find those people? Uh, I think they found me. (laughs) Maybe I found (laughs) them. I, I look for them, but they also find me at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. I have a, a group of mothers who I call, they're from a, an organization called Zonta. I don't know if you heard of Zonta. I haven't. Uh, there's a, there's a Zonta International, but they also have uh, clubs in Australia as well. So they have a Zonta of Botany Bay. And they are my Aussie mom, I call them, and they are just different. They've been part of my, they met me when I was probably 15. And ever since, they've also been part of that journey in my upbringing in Australia. They had come at the time where I was also vulnerable, mm-hmm. at the time when I started to become successful in my own journey. And they've been an angel at the back that said, you can do it. Um, and, and, and then I have it in my African communities. I have aunties who have sold the work that I do and are constantly, you know, just calling me and checking up and wanting to be part of my journey. So I think from that, it's just been like your work now. It's a reflection of those women who have just come into your life. And so in my back of my head, I said, I'm on a mission to make sure these women in my life know that their contribution has not been for nothing, that their contribution has empowered me to even do something better. And often when I find myself tiring and getting frustrated about, you know, some things that I don't have control, I have reflected and I said, you have done what you can and these people will not back down. And so I think that's what I get it from there, from everyone, every mother that ever come that I come across to. So we need to give a shout out to your Zonta uh, yes. Aussie mums. Thank My you. Zonta, the Zonta of Bodney Bay. I yes. always give them a shout out everywhere I go. They might not know it, but they play a significant role every single day. I always make a joke and I said, sometime I've never, I think I never really questioned myself and said, oh, I don't have parents like my immediate family, even when my parents died or my mum died. Um, I don't think there have been a day where I felt sorry for myself. Mm. That's really a significant part of my resilience. And it also speaks value of the women that I have around me that I haven't been able to say, oh, my God, you know, this is my life. And so I'm always grateful that it has embedded itself into my journey and just been part of it. And how old were you when you lost your parents? <sighs> I think... If I remember very well from families that told me, I must have been probably one years old or something like that. Yeah, I was quite young. Incredibly young. Yeah. So um, I asked you about leadership um, being born or made. And one of the other, you know, questions I'm fascinated in is kind of pivotal moments in your journey. Mm. And I feel like we may have heard a couple of those. If I reflect back at you, one is... um, one is probably your football trip to yes, South yes. Africa. Um, another one I heard was the the beauty pageant where you were yes. runner up, and they weren't quite ready for Australia. wasn't ready for yeah as gorgeous as yourself at that point. <laughs> um, what else would you call out as as a pivotal moment that sort of shaped you as a leader fundamentally? 
Yeah, I, I think those and um and my trip. I, I after I came back from South Africa, actually, I did my first community development trip to Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like I was learning over again. It, I went to a very remote community that only spoke Spanish, and uh, and I spoke English. I was going to say, how's your Spanish? <laughs> I only walk away with a few of those. Um, so I think that was also my journey um, of just really reflecting and just understanding that I really had a significant opportunity in Australia. Mm. I think it, it added that I could do anything and that anything was possible for me. Um, but also... I do, I, I think I haven't mentioned it before, but my sister as well, I have an older sister who was always, who has always acted like a mother as well. And um, she was part of my journey since I was young in te- of fighting of the things that I was doing and also acting like a mother, providing me funding to go overseas for holidays or to do some community development work. And, and so I think all those just gave me a little bit of reflection of where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. But I think that sense of wanting to look at the world differently, not because from my own perspective, but to see what can I do for others is what has always been the drive in terms of my leadership. Um, And it's about how do I make sure the need of other people are being put first um, through my journey. And I think, be going to South Africa and recognizing the state that community was in. Um, then in the fashion industry where I was always seen as the other, even though I felt like I was not. And then having a trip, um, a trip to go to Costa Rica and also being put in a community space where they didn't have electricity, they didn't have water, where they're building them a community center. I think all those little journey uh, at 17, 18, 19, really shaped me and gave me a path to look forward to. And instead of looking at my past of where I came from or the challenges that I've been to, for me, it was like acknowledging those, but also finding a way to move forward with a, a mission, having a purpose. And I think that's what it is about my journey has been what is the purpose of the things that I am doing? What, what, do I, what do I want to do? How would that have an impact on other people? Um, and so all the decisions that I often make, it's about where I sit back, I reflect and I said, well, what impact is it going to have? Um, and is it going to have an imp- impact? How and what can I do about it? And so I think it was just those small little journey that just really made me thrive more. Yeah, have you ever, um, you know, had sort of self-doubt or or suffered at all from imposter syndrome? Um, yes, I think we all do at, at some stage. And, and um, one of those, I think now that even as I speak to you now, I think I start to finally figure out, oh, is this happening? Like, have I create these opportunities for myself I, I do get those um dad often and one if I could say I, I think I'm glad I have built enough confidence in myself because I start to remove myself from thinking and say no no you've worked hard and you deserve to be here yes. um, 
Um, and, and then often I, I, I've been put in many positions where either as a young woman um, in the space where with older people where I'm speaking um, toward important things or I'm the only black woman there challenging, you know, mindset or educating people on certain things. I've always find myself to say, don't doubt yourself. Don't mm-hmm. doubt yourself because you've worked hard to be here. And, and it is all about the confidence and believing in yourself because I think we do get put in that situation where you start to question yourself and said, I don't think I can do it. But I think one of the beauty with my journey is that I've always been the person that said, yes, I can do it. And um, I think that's how I find myself doing my PhD right now because <laughs> I just said, yes, I'm going to do it. And, and then I take it on board. What are you doing your PhD in? So I'm looking at a cultural practice called Bride price so bride price is the cultural practice among the african communities um predominantly in i'm looking at my culture the south sudanese dinka community so it's when the when you get marriage and a groom has to pay a certain amount of money to the bride family back home in south sudan um that is how marriages are initiated that's how kinship uh, a, a form um, and and so I'm interested to look at the practice of it in the Australian um, context and looking at the impact if there is impact and the historical contact of it as well among the community mm, wow yeah so <laughs> so what's your big dream going forward ah big dream oh I want um when it's not necessary dream, but I guess um, my purpose, my purpose moving forward in life is to, to make sure that I'm creating an inclusive society as much as it sounds like it's la la or rainbow. Um, it is something that I'm passionate because I can acknowledge my privilege now. I can acknowledge the opportunity and the network that I have. And I know that we don't live in a perfect society. And if knowing that we don't, if I don't have a purpose to support who those who don't have a voice, then who will? Yes. For me, it's that recognizing my own privilege. My purpose then is to make sure that I am advocating on those communities, on those young women, on refugees or any minority community that feel the voice is unheard and and that's what drives me so much for people to take out of our conversation and you um it's wonderful to have you as part of it the final question that i ask everybody and i'd just love to hear your answer to is what does brave feminine leadership mean from your perspective and do you think it needs to change i don't think brave feminism needs to change and for me the reason and what it means to me i'll start with what it means we get, we get it wrong. We think, you know, being a brave feminist is about one thing or another. But for me, it's about understanding the world that we live in, understanding that we want to advocate for everyone to be represented, for everyone to have an equitable opportunities, men and women, but also looking at it from an intersectionality perspective, that each element of leadership is different. And so it's about the leadership that we bring in through nurturing, and I think that's the word that I can attach to it is that it brings the nurture element out of it, that we understand the different elements that play a role and how it can have an impact on individual. So it doesn't need to change. 
it needs to be bring out more. We need to elaborate on that nurturing um, leadership aspect and understanding individual and understanding that we are all different diverse community and we have intersex issues that can cause problems. Um, so it's about nurturing, it's about that's the word that I could attach to brave feminism. Amazing. And yeah, thank you so much for adding your voice to this conversation. I'm so thrilled to have had you as part of the conversation and I can't wait to watch what you keep doing from here. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Very much appreciate it, Lisa.